Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And this is the story of Megan Hargan and the murder of her mother, Pamela Hargan, and her sister, Helen Hargan. If you like our podcast, please hit the little ellipse, the three dots there on your screen, and hit follow or like. We'd really appreciate it. Sixty-three-year-old Pamela Hargan was a nice mom who happened to be a millionaire. When she moved to Dean Drive in McLean, Virginia, she let her oldest daughter, Megan, and Megan's daughter, who was seven or eight years old, move in with her. Megan was married, but her husband, who was in the military, was out of the country, so living with her mom made life easier. Or at least that's what they were telling everyone. Steve and Pam Hargan divorced while their children were young. Pam moved her small family to Potomac, Maryland, where she got a job at Lockheed Martin. She was a good mom, and she worked hard to create a good life for her family. Her career took off, and she became a vice president. She subsequently joined the defense contractor SAIC as a vice president. She was able to provide very well for her family. In fact, she was very good with money and used her expertise to build an $8 million estate for herself. She was very generous with her girls and within the community. She sounds nice. She sounded like a really nice person, I thought. We don't have a lot of details about the background on this one, but there's a lot to cover. A childhood neighbor said Pam was very proud of her girls, and it seemed everyone got along fairly well. As I said, Pam did succeed in the public realm, climbing that corporate ladder with the best of them. And, as we all know, having a mom who has to work all the time means the older kids are pitching in and caring for their younger sibling. In this case, Helen. The only true problem pointed out by family was Megan. Megan and Pam had always had a rough relationship. Every child has a different relationship with their mother than the other siblings because some personalities mesh better together. But Pam would tell her own sister about how Megan was very resentful of her little sister. And Pam's sister also knew that Megan was kind of a butthead to her mom. Oh, what was she like? It sounds like she was very rude to her, very disrespectful, and really gave her a hard time most of the time. Okay, so not like rebellious? Probably rebellious. Oh, okay. Probably kind of what you think of when you think of a mom beleaguered by a daughter who can't behave. Okay. And what about Helen? What was she like? Well, Helen was a lot like her mother. She was pretty and smart. She double majored in mathematics and management science at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. She was very motivated to succeed. She made a really good friend in college named Erin. 
According to Aaron, Helen was a very private, serious person, and Aaron remembers how difficult it was to get to know her at first. Eventually, they became friends, and that was a friendship that was meant to last a lifetime. Helen was quiet, but she was positive and very motivated. Helen stayed busy in college. She worked as a waitress, carried good grades with her double major, studied a lot, took the time to hang out with her friends, and worked as a waitress. That's where she met Carlos Gutierrez. They fell in love despite the difference in their ages. Carlos was somewhere in his 30s, and as we know, Helen was in her 20s, early 20s. That is a big gap. It is, but it seems that she had a maturity about her that was very attractive to this man. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Helen had just graduated from college, and the two started talking about locking down their relationship when Pamela decided it was time to lure her 24-year-old daughter back to Virginia. So she started building Helen a house, and Helen moved back home. Okay, where was home? Ah, it was in McLean, Virginia. Oh, okay, nice. That's in Fairfax County, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the wealthiest, like, three cities in the United States. Yes, it's a very wealthy community. Mm-hmm. Pamela was very well off, and I think this neighborhood was well-suited to her. It wasn't fancy. It looked very simple. Mm-hmm. But most of the people there were as wealthy as she was. That's nice. Yeah. So did Pamela just build houses for each of her girls when they became adults? I'm not really sure how that worked. I'm not sure if she promised her daughters that she would give them a house when they graduated from college Mm -hmm. or when they became a certain age or if this was the first time she'd offered a house to someone. It isn't really clear Mm -hmm. what had happened there. I know that Megan and her daughter were living with Pamela. Uh Uh-huh. So if she'd given Megan a house, maybe Megan squandered it. I don't know. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm really not sure how it was working. But this new house for Helen seemed to be a real issue with Megan, who was 34 years old. She's 10 years older than Helen. Okay. In fact, it made her so angry, she went out and found a new house for herself in West Virginia. And she was pressuring her mom to foot the bill for this house because Megan was flat broke and she didn't have a job. Huh. With her husband in the military, she should have been able to get a mortgage on her own. That seems interesting, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And that's kind of part of the story. But anyway, I'm not sure why the Pam was telling her no. Mm Mm-hmm. So if Megan was married and her husband was in the military... It seems like she should have been able to qualify for a mortgage on her own. You would think that. So what about Carlos? He didn't move to Virginia with Helen? No, he didn't. And if you think about how it goes with most couples, if they're building a home, usually one stays in the original spot and the other, especially if they're not married, Mm -hmm. will move and so they still have some income coming in from their old life Mm -hmm. to help fund their new life so I didn't really find that particularly unusual I know that he was very close to the family I know that 
everyone knew about him. It wasn't like he was a secret or there were fights about him. Okay. But I don't know why he was still in Texas. Okay. So it was actually Carlos who alerted the officials to a problem on July 14, 2017. He asked them to do a welfare check on Pamela's home. Okay. At 11.30 that day, Helen had called Carlos. Remember? Let's see. You know that. Okay. Yeah. He said she sounded, and this is a quote, frightened and scared. She was crying and told Carlos that Megan had come into her room and informed her that she just shot their mother. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Megan allegedly told Helen that their mother had caught Megan doing some sort of escort deal, which tells you a little bit about what Megan was up to, and Pam had threatened to take custody of her 8-year-old granddaughter. Okay, so they were having a fight because Megan was living an alternative lifestyle and Pamela didn't think it was good for her grandchild. Well, sort of. I think that Pam probably was wondering why Megan was doing some sort of an escort deal when she was living with her multimillionaire mother who provided everything for her. That is a good question. This wasn't something that she needed to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> anyway, Carlos was very concerned and asked her where Megan was at present. Helen told him that Megan was somewhere downstairs on the computer, still trying to transfer funds from her mother's account. Shortly thereafter, Megan used her mother's computer to authorize the transfer of $420,000 from one of her mother's bank accounts to her title company. Wow, that's an expensive house. Mm, that is a very expensive house, and the truth of the matter is... It was more money than the house would have sold for. Hmm. I went ahead and dug into the records to see what this house looked like. Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty basic house, and the cost of the house was nowhere near $420,000. Well, that's really weird, too. I know. I wondered if perhaps she'd over-transferred the amount of money mm -hmm. so she'd get a refund and have some money to live on. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I don't know for sure if it does. I'm not sure how an overpayment would be handled, mm -hmm. but that's what I supposed. Okay. Anyway, back to the story. This wasn't just one phone call. This was a series of phone calls as reported by Carlos. On the next call, Helen cried as she described how she could hear her mother dying. Carlos told Helen to run. Helen said she couldn't. She was pretty sure her niece was still in the house, and she was hoping to save her from her crazy mother. Carlos said she needed to call 911, and again Helen demurred, saying she was worried about the 8-year-old daughter being in the house when the police came. She didn't want to expose her to violence or have this daughter watch her mother be killed or taken away. Mm-hmm. But Carlos was desperately worried about Helen's well-being, and he was quite honestly freaking out. And Helen told him to hold off for a bit. It's not like this was the first time Megan had wigged out. Maybe things would come out okay. Okay, that doesn't seem like a realistic plan if you can hear your mother dying. I know, but I think that Helen was doing what 
people from families who have resources typically do. Mm -hmm. They don't want to call the police. I think that she was in high stress and she was doing exactly what had happened in the past. Okay. So Megan had wigged out before and they had never needed to call the police. So you just kind of waited out. Because they could use their resources to cover up anything she was doing. Okay. So, yeah, you just wait for it. Because if you think about it, a lot of people, the goal is to not have the police at your home. Yeah. Yeah, I think most people prefer not to have a scene. Yeah, like that. Anyway, Carlos remained upset. And Helen told him to try to remain calm and quiet and to just act normal for now. Which, again, kind of indicates that she was doing exactly like she had done in the past in similar situations. Mm -hmm. But then she and Carlos lost connection. Carlos tried to call her back, and there was no answer. He called several times, and then, to his surprise, Megan picked up his call. Megan told Carlos that Helen couldn't come to the phone right now, that Helen and her mom had been in this huge fight And now Helen was unavailable for calls. But she'd for sure let Helen know he'd called. Soon after, Carlos began receiving texts, purportedly from Helen, saying that everything was just fine, just fine, and reassuring him that she wasn't mad at Megan at all. But Carlos was pretty sure it wasn't Helen on the other end. He knew his girlfriend. He knew how she texted, how she said things, and these texts were not from her. Oh, that's sad. Megan's car was caught on a street camera leaving the home at 12.58 p.m. She and her daughter were headed to West Virginia to take possession of her new home the one Megan had purchased with her murdered mother's money. That's grim. Yeah. If she left with her daughter at 1258, she must have had her daughter there during the murders? That's what it indicates. It's horrible. Agreed. That's probably one of the most egregious things she did. Yeah. I mean, murdering your family is terrible. Murdering your family in front of an eight-year-old is really terrible. Especially when it's a planned murder. Mm-hmm. Anyway, at one fifteen, after what seemed like a lifetime of waiting, Carlos contacted the Fairfax County Police Dispatch, saying, Yes, I have an emergency. He told them he'd gotten a phone call from his girlfriend earlier and that he was in Texas and very worried about her safety. Then he said, My girlfriend won't answer the phone, and I'm thinking my girlfriend's life is in danger. The 911 dispatcher responded to his distress call by saying, Okay, what I need you to do, sir, is call your local jurisdiction, file a report with them, and tell them that Fairfax County requires a teletype in order to do a welfare check. Wow, that's professional. And unbelievable. Like, that doesn't make any sense. You call 911 and they say, okay, why don't you call someone else and file a report and then have something sent over in teletype, whatever teletype is. I like, know. if it's an emergency, the person will be gone by the time you get there. Exactly. 
So I listened to that actual call, and that is exactly what the dispatcher said to him. And Carlos was frustrated, of course. So Carlos tried harder with this uh, person <laughs> saying, I think this is life or death. I think someone might be dead. And the dispatcher replied, Right, sir. File a report and have them send us a teletype. Wow. So zero help. That seems really strange. Do you think they didn't believe him? I'm not sure. I don't understand what happened there at all. I know he was in Texas, but my heavens, he called saying this is life or death, and they said file a report and ask your people to call our people? Yeah, that doesn't seem right at all. No. About 15 minutes passed, and according to 48 hours, Carlos called back. Maybe he'd done it wrong. He needed Fairfax County to go check on Helen and her mother. This is what he said. My girlfriend told me that her sister killed her mom. Now my girlfriend won't answer her phone. This new dispatcher responded differently. She said, and I did hear this call too, Okay, well this is out of the blue. Your girlfriend is sitting in a house with a dead woman? <laughs> that also does not seem very professional. Are these 911 dispatchers or someone sitting at home eating a hot dog? Yeah, it doesn't make... Like, that's not how you respond to someone who's panicked. I just... I, I couldn't believe my ears. If I hadn't listened to them myself, I would wonder if they were really accurate. Mm-hmm. But Carlos did affirm with a yes, and this dispatcher actually did her job. She sent some officers to the house. Well, I'm glad they finally went, but at this point, it's pretty late. Well, remember, this is one fifteen. Mm-hmm. Carlos didn't stop there. He was determined to get help for Helen and Molly, and he wasn't confident the police were on their way. I wouldn't be. <laughs> no, not at all. And he called Helen's other sister, begging her to travel to Virginia from a relatively nearby state. That sister had immediately headed to Virginia and contacted the police herself. Okay. That's probably smart. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. The timeline gets a bit fuzzy here. And it might be that Carlos made that second call quite a bit later than his reported 15 minutes. Or maybe the emergency responders were slow to respond. Or maybe the dispatchers had to sit and process this out of the blue news. But something's not right because CBS News reports that patrol officers arrived at the Hargan house at 3 p.m. So, like, two hours later, almost. Yes. I can't imagine what would take them an hour and a half to get there, especially if he said multiple times, I think someone's been murdered. I completely agree. I was stymied by this, and I looked through all of our source materials a couple of times trying to see if I had that timeline wrong, but that's what everything said. Mm-hmm. Now, keep this in mind. They showed up at 3 p.m. in response to a call placed by Helen's boyfriend, Carlos, that Carlos says occurred at 1.30 p.m. If anyone has information to help us clarify this, reach out and let us know what happened here. Yeah, I would love to know why that is. Me too. When they finally came, the police arrived in force and ready for anything. They were worried there might be a showdown with that sister who was reported to have killed her mother. 
They had no idea whether the 911 caller's girlfriend was still alive. They had the house surrounded, and when no one answered the door or Pamela's or Helen's cell phones, the police broke through that door to gain entry, and what they found was horrific. Pamela was found face down in the mudroom of her home, shot twice in the head. Shell casings from a 22 Ruger rifle were strewn about the room. Her body was carefully covered with a blanket, described by one of the officers as a quilt, and her cell phone was lying on top of the quilt. Well, that's suspicious. Mm-hmm. According to the DailyMail.com, they found Helen's body upstairs in the bedroom ensuite with a rifle wedged between her feet, the muzzle resting on her stomach, as though she'd balanced it there to commit suicide. She was in upright position on the toilet seat. So she was sitting up after being shot? I know, that sounds really weird, right? I could only find second-hand accounts of this, and believe me, I dug around trying to find more. But this is what we have. So try to put it into context. A woman sits on a closed toilet, shoots herself in the head with a Ruger rifle. At this point, the police think the bullet entered her neck, just under her chin, and exited out the top of her head. But we'll talk about that more later. And somehow... After shooting herself with a rifle, she remained in a seated position on the toilet seat with the rifle wedged between her feet where she'd balanced it with the muzzle resting on her tummy. So that doesn't make any sense because even with a small gun, you're going to have kickback. Mm -hmm. And this is a rifle. So how did the kickback from the rifle not move the rifle And how did the impact of the bullet not move Helen from her, like, nice little seated position? Sitting upright doesn't really happen if you're not conscious. I know. It's, like, the weirdest thing I've ever heard. I don't understand it at all. Yeah. So I looked at that gun picture that they had in the evidence files. Mm -hmm. A twenty-two looks like that old toy we used to play with at Grandma's house. Okay, so you have to, like, cock the gun by pulling, the like, this big handle by the trigger down and then back up like a cowboy. And then you have to pull the trigger. It's not like a semi-automatic type thing. That's exactly right. It's called a lever action. And it takes pulling that lever back and then forth and then shoot, pull the lever back and forth and shoot, because that's what's pushing the bullet into position. Okay, so... I know I'm not a detective, but this does not seem right. Oh, it gets worse. I keep coming back to what this Detective Byerson, who headed up the investigation into the murder, says. He claims he reminded his team, as they were executing the first search warrant so they could investigate, mm -hmm. he said, wait, you will make mistakes if you make assumptions before you actually do the work. That's good advice. I think so, too. Remember, he's the head of the investigation, so this gave me a lot of confidence when I first heard it. Mm -hmm. This is the story that he's relaying to reporters after the fact. But if that's what he truly said, it's a little problematic to me. I'm not sure of the context of his words, like when it was actually said, if it was said before the police made their announcement at 8 p.m. or what, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The police... And remember, this Detective Byerson was over them, okay? Mm -hmm. 
curiously overlooked the fact that they were investigating this murder because Carlos had called 911 saying Megan had shot Pamela Hargan. Carlos didn't really appear even to land on the radar in the initial investigation. Despite his attempts to communicate with the Fairfax County Police, they appeared to continue to disregard anything he'd said. The police contacted Helen's father and Pamela's ex-husband, Steve Harkin, by telephone, suggesting that Helen may have killed her mother and then shot herself. Oh, I don't think that makes sense, but what a horrible thing to hear. Yes, and Steve, of course, immediately called both of his other daughters. Megan made a U-turn to head to her dad's house. The three of them gathered around the phone to speak with the police. Megan and her sister could be heard sobbing. Then Megan surprisingly composed herself and speaking to her sister with the police listening in, she carefully painted a picture of the drama that she alleged had unfolded, saying, and this is a quote, This morning my mom let Helen know that she was canceling the contract on the house she's building her because she truly believed that Helen was going to try to move Carlos into the house and my mom didn't want him being there. Megan docilely described how she and her daughter had left the home at about 1.30 that day to get away from the vicious argument that had ensued and how Helen was way beyond upset. Megan then added, Helen has been so angry, like just so angry all the time. She embellished her story with mentions of how Helen had been depressed lately and that she often expressed suicidal ideations, which no one had ever claimed before, and that she had never dreamed that Helen could do something this terrible. She wound up her story with, I just don't understand why she could have had the greatest life ever. It just all feels very insincere. And terrible. And this is where it gets really crazy. So remember Carlos called Fairfax County 911 at 115. They blow him off and he ends up having to call back and ignore the time gap for now. He says, my girlfriend Helen called me crying and saying her sister Megan just killed her mom and now I can't get hold of her. That is a quote from the 911 call. Okay. The police show up at the home. They find Pamela dead, they find Helen dead, and they interview Megan and decide she's their most reliable source. That's so odd. She should have been an immediate suspect. Exactly. But what did she tell them? Well, first she shared that conversation with her sister with the police listening in. Mm -hmm. In her personal interview, she started by saying, I love Helen, but something had really changed in her over the past couple of months. Then Megan helpfully described how Helen had been a problem for a while, saying she wants nothing to do with the family. She just wants to be off on her own. Megan also mentioned the home she was in the process of purchasing, that she had just finished purchasing that day. In fact, the deal was supposed to have gone through yesterday the 13th, but it wasn't finalized until the 14th, and she was very excited to be moving to West Virginia. I think the police probably, in the proper course of investigation, should have told her, mm, no, you're not. They should have, should have told her to stay in town, right? Well, they decided she was right. It was a suicide because she'd said so. So perhaps there wasn't a problem with that. Anyway, she was there 
in Virginia in the moment. Mm -hmm. So maybe they didn't think about it. Okay. So continuing their investigation, the police found the neighbors to be friendly but not extremely helpful. None of them were really friends of the family. The Hargans were relative newcomers to the neighborhood. They'd only lived there for a couple of years. The neighbors expressed regret for not being a little more neighborly, admitting that in today's world everyone in the neighborhood seemed to be a bit isolated, a bit distant from their neighbors. As far as they knew, Megan and her little daughter lived with Pamela because Megan's husband was in the military and on a special assignment. Here's that husband again. Mm -hmm. It must be some kind of assignment because she lived with her mother for several years. This husband was supposed to return soon. In fact, Megan had told everyone they were in the process of purchasing a home in West Virginia. Yeah, the husband seems very strangely absent, given that her mother was murdered when he was supposed to be coming home anyway. Which is really odd over the years. That is very odd. But the police also, in their investigation, found a book with passwords to all of Pamela's financial accounts in the basement of their home, on a shelf. It wasn't part of their search warrant, but they did take a photo of it at the time because it was so unusual. Okay. Well, by 8 p.m., the investigation was complete. The police, inexplicably relying on Megan to get their story, and concluded that Helen had turned the gun on herself after shooting her mother. And the Fairfax County Police spokesman made a public announcement. This is that announcement at 8 o'clock that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Telling the media what had already been shared with the Hargan family. This was a murder-suicide. Helen had murdered her mother and then killed herself. It was literally an open-and-shut case. The media ran with the story, flashing photos of a pretty, pretty blonde with cherry-red lipstick and her beautiful mother. It was unimaginable. Yeah, for a good reason. Right. But it sold a lot of copy, and it seemed so different from most parasites that people typically heard about. Yeah, this really isn't making sense. It's reminding me of that Scott Moody story that we covered in episode 14, Murder, Money, and Cows, because the story just doesn't add up. I know. This one does seem to be filled with those inexplicable decisions by the investigators and nonsensical theories about the suicide that work to shoehorn evidence into their implausible conclusions, right? Yeah. But it gets worse. our source material claimed that Helen's other sister seemed to confirm some of Megan's story, claiming their mother thought perhaps Helen was using drugs and their mother wanted to do an intervention. Oh, that is surprising. Yes, it is. And I thought, well, maybe this is why the police lent more credence to what was being said by Megan than mm -hmm. Helen at that point. But I don't know. I wasn't able to confirm this information. Okay. So, there was a detective at the scene named Julia Elliott. She told reporters at CBS News, after the fact, that she'd found some concerning anomalies in the evidence. First, Pamela, the mom's cell phone, and these kind of blow my mind. Maybe I'm missing the point somewhere, but let's see if you see it the same way as I do. The placement and location of Pamela's cell phone was unusual. 
Here is the quote from Detective Elliot. It's lying on top of the pool of blood in the blanket. It certainly wouldn't fall on top of the blanket and on top of the blood once you were already covered up. Why are you laughing? Um... I think that's pretty obvious and a good reason for them to question the murder-suicide idea because obviously someone needed to text from that phone after mom had died. Yes, I think that's true, but isn't it even more obvious that the blanket was placed there over the dead person? (laughs) That's a good point as well. (laughs) I was like, okay, the cell phone seems to be an interesting aspect of it, but... The fact that the blanket was over the dead woman as she was face down on the floor suggests a lot of placed by someone else. Mm-hmm. Detective Elliot also noticed while examining Helen's death scene that there was very little blood on the rifle. On the rifle that she supposedly shot herself with? Yes, that would have been down below her because, of, remember, she was in a seated position even when they found her. Mm-hmm. And there should have been some blood on her already if she just killed her mother. Yes, I would say so too. And I mean, this bathroom was predictably covered in blood, but there was very little blood on that rifle itself. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Right. Gravity and common sense say this is a really weird scene, right? Mm Mm-hmm. She doesn't mention it in the interview with CBS News, and I'm simply playing junior detective here, but the rifle had Megan's fingerprints on it but they did not find any of Helen's fingerprints on that gun. Okay, so I understand that in a murder-suicide investigation, which they decided this was really quickly, Mm -hmm. they don't, or they might not, take fingerprints on the gun, and at least not immediately. So I don't know if they did that here eventually because of what the lead detective said, or if it happened much later. But, I mean, it makes sense that Helen's finger marks wouldn't be found on the rifle given that we know this was definitely not a murder-suicide. Right, but it makes no sense to find no fingerprints on the rifle after a murder-suicide and go, this is absolutely a murder-suicide, let's go announce that to the public. You're right. Third was Helen's cell phone. Helen's phone was found on the bathroom countertop next to the toothpaste, which seems logical. They knew that she'd called and texted Carlos that day. What didn't seem logical was that the cell phone was completely devoid of fingerprints. Again, none. Again, Detective Elliot speaking said, quote, What we found was what looked like swipe marks, as if someone had taken their hand and wiped off the front of the screen. Yeah, that doesn't seem suspicious, right? Uh-uh, <laughs> not at all. So the lead detective told his team, Don't make assumptions. One of the detectives on the scene is reportedly noting these peculiar anomalies in the evidence, Mm -hmm. we assume, based on her media interviews. Yes, and we realize those are after the fact, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like that was in the moment for her. Yeah, which makes it even stranger that this was deemed a murder-suicide by 8 p.m. the same evening. I know. Like, why didn't she say something? And... Did she say something? Because there seems to be a lot to this mystery. Mm -hmm. But they announced it was a murder or suicide at 8 p.m., like you said. Mm -hmm. They also conducted gunshot residue tests on Megan's hands at some point, which is really kind of odd for a murder or suicide. Mm -hmm. So even though they made that decision and made that announcement, 
They were checking the rifle bag for DNA, which, by the way, only tested positive for Megan's DNA. They checked the rifle for fingerprints, and they checked the cell phone for fingerprints. There were none. They did take a lot of steps in the right direction, which makes me wonder if there was internal conflict in mm-hmm. that investigation. Yeah, it sounds like at least somebody thought there was more to the story, which is a good thing. Well, it sounds like two somebodies. Mm-hmm. They spoke after the fact, so you can't say that for sure. But it does seem that they were trying not to be insubordinate, but they were saying, hey, there's something here maybe you should look at. And even if you look at the context of what that lead detective said, mm-hmm. slow down, it sounds like someone else was not slowing down. Yeah, someone was rushing it. Right, but anyway... This is what we know about the murder scene and what we know about how the investigation proceeded and was then concluded. The bodies were sent for autopsy. The police filed their reports. The media had a bit of a heyday and Megan quietly packed up her things and prepared to move to her new home in West Virginia. So there was another sister. Was she the oldest sister? No, Megan was the oldest sister. The other sister is the middle sister, the middle daughter. Okay. Okay. And what did she think about this? Well, there's not a lot of information in the media about her other than she may have confirmed some of what Megan was saying during that initial phone call. Mm -hmm. But this sister didn't really appear to speak to the media or really do anything but avoid cameras when they went to court. Okay, so... Then I guess we just respect her privacy until she decides she has something to say. Agreed. The loss she and the rest of this family has been through is horrendous. I know our hearts both go out to them. Mm-hmm. It's very hard, and I think that your privacy can be hard won in this situation. Right. So what did the autopsy say? Well, Pamela's autopsy said she had been a victim of a homicidal shooting, as expected. Right, with that blanket and that cell phone there. Mm-hmm. But here's the unexpected. Well, sort of, if you listen to all of the media reports, what it looked like Helen putting the gun under her chin and shooting the rifle was actually a reverse of the actual story. The bullet had entered her skull from the top of her head and it exited through her neck. Oh, Yeah, so the rifle had been held in a fairly vertical position above Helen's head when she was killed. The trajectory of the bullet indicated the rifle had been held vertically, pretty much a 45-degree angle. That is so sad. So her sister must have had her already sitting on the toilet before she shot her. Because how else was, was she getting a rifle on top of someone's head? Or sitting somewhere. Yeah, sitting somewhere. That's right. Maybe not in the bathroom. Right. But this still kind of harkens back to Scott Moody. You're right, Scott Moody. Except the detectives in this case did not double down on their theory. The investigation, when they found the trajectory of the rifle shot and the entry of the rifle shot, was back on. They actually put in some more police work and found out some new things. That's good. I'm glad that they got back to work. I know, right? The police began wondering where that rifle came from. Megan told the police that it was her husband's. She'd been storing it in her mother's house while she lived there. She then described how the day before she'd seen two suspicious men. It looked as if they were casing the neighborhood 
and it made her nervous. So she'd gone downstairs and retrieved it from her storage just in case. She was worried for her mother. Wow, that's convenient. And it kind of sounds like the dad in Only the Good Die Young. It does. It's so interesting how people can't come up with original material when they try to blame other people for murders they've committed. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the police, who listened so closely to Megan's completely believable story just a few days earlier and had publicly declared all of this a murder-suicide, they took that closer look, and they learned that Megan hadn't really been completely forthright with them. Capital One Bank contacted Detective Byerson, the man who said they should have slowed down, mm-hmm. on July 17th, so three days after the murders. And they provided some interesting details about this case. When Megan told the police everything she knew on the 14th, she'd forgotten to mention how she'd called her mother's bank the day prior to the murders. Impersonating Pamela, Megan authorized the transfer of $420,000 from her mother's account to the title company that was holding the closing of the home she wanted to purchase in West Virginia. Banks are fairly careful institutions, and despite Megan playing like she was Pamela, passing all of the security questions prior to the transfer request, the bank had quietly noted that the phone number that this Pamela had used was very different from the one on record. So, of course, the bank had contacted the real Pamela at the number provided to make sure it was actually her ordering the transfer. And she'd put a stop to that transfer and had frozen her account, asking the bank to help her identify the person who had tried to rob her. Megan also failed to mention that she'd gone into the bank the very next morning, the day of the murders, under the guise of ensuring the account was frozen and in hopes that the bank would make that transfer for her anyway. We can leave a picture of Megan at the bank at Parasite.org so everyone can check it out. Well, had she succeeded in getting the transfer that morning? No, I mentioned it briefly, but you might have missed it. It seems she went home from that visit to the bank, shot her mother, advised Helen of her activities, and then went back downstairs where she successfully initiated a transfer of $420,000 from a different account of her mother's to the title company to purchase her home. Mm. That is a pretty big down payment. That's what's super odd here. The $420,000 exceeded the price of the home by quite a bit. I went through and did a search of that home, Mm -hmm. and that home would have been completely paid off, and then some. Megan didn't have a job and didn't even have $30 in her bank account at the time. And without her mother's money, she wouldn't be moving to West Virginia And I think she over-transferred an amount so that the title company would rebate her some of the money. Mm -hmm. And she'd have living expenses for about a year if she lived really, really well. Wow, that's sad. I know, right? Two days later, on July 19th, Megan was escorted to the police station for a little chat with Detective Byerson. That little chat wound up lasting four hours, and Megan ended up confessing to what the police could already prove. 
that she'd been the one who had tried to steal the $420,000 from her mother's account to purchase her new home. But she adamantly denied killing her mother and sister. And when the police pressed her, she said, Just blame me. That's fine. There's nothing. Just blame me. So I don't think she thought there would be enough evidence to actually show that she did it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a very um, petulant response. It is a petulant response and probably one that had worked in the past. When people would confront her, she'd say, just blame me, mm-hmm. when she knew she'd done it. Yeah. But anyway, the police were on to Megan now. It took them 16 months to cross all of the T's and dot all of the I's, but eventually their investigation was complete. When they went back to the house with a search warrant, Pamela's book of passwords had disappeared from the basement shelf. Oh, that's suspicious. Mm -hmm. On November 9th, 2018, they headed out to arrest Megan. So remember, this is over a year later, and they're going to Megan's new home that she's living in with her daughter and Mm -hmm. purportedly her husband. But I'm not sure he ever lived with her there. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because she was now called a 35-year-old single mother. So I'm not sure if the husband had ever reunited with her. Okay. Okay. So were we able to find any evidence there was a husband out there somewhere? Um, You were really smart to pick up on that. I noticed that her husband was mentioned several times, Mm -hmm. but the husband never appeared. They didn't show a husband in court. They didn't show a husband coming home. It was really odd. Mm -hmm. So I did do a little digging, and there was a husband. She married him when she was fairly young, Mm -hmm. and he is the father of her little daughter. So, yes, there is definitely a husband. Okay. So he was around, but maybe by the time he got home, this was all happening, and he wanted nothing to do with it. Or he was already in West Virginia living there, and she wanted to go down there to be closer so that their daughter could see him. Maybe. Or, 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 but that seems like, a plausible explanation. I'm not sure what her motive was for moving to West Virginia. So when they went to arrest her, they did have a search warrant, and guess what they found? What? That book of passwords of Pamela's. Ah, of course they did. She needed that to commit fraud, right? That's right. So what happened next? Well, it took the prosecutors three years to prepare for trial. The prosecution's theory was that Megan murdered her mother because she was desperate to take her money and buy her own home. Believable. Yeah, so it was looking like a red-collar crime. It does. For those of you who don't know what a red-collar crime is, it's a subgroup of white-collar crime in which the perpetrator uses violence to avoid detection or prosecution. Exactly. So the defense decided they were going to argue right along Megan's storyline, which I think they probably felt like they needed to do so she didn't look like she had lied to the police for three days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because it kind of makes your client look bad if... The first thing they do is lie to the police, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, 
So their story was basically that Helen was angry and unstable and she had murdered her mother as they fought over Carlos and then she just went and shot herself. Oh wait, how? How does one shoot oneself in the top of the head with a rifle while sitting on the toilet? Ah, uh, but you already know the answer to that one. Again, go listen to Murder, Money, and Cows. <laughs> Very true. So we have a second alleged parasite offender who has performed an acrobatic feat by... Shooting themselves in the head using a rifle held at an impossible angle and then pulling the trigger with their toes. <laughs> Except in this case, there isn't an entire cadre of dishonest men behind it. So it's a very different story. Mm-hmm. The police got it together and said, yeah, this was Megan. But the defense argued that the prosecution got the facts wrong. Oh. They alleged the autopsy itself was wrong. And Helen had, in fact, put the gun under her chin and shot the weapon into her skull, pressing the trigger with her toes. <laughs> Again, really unlikely. But then they add an additional caveat that makes it impossible. They said she was wearing socks, which is why there was no fingerprints on the murder weapon. Okay, wait. So their argument is she shot herself at the site that the bullet actually exited her body, Mm -hmm. as shown in autopsy, and the rifle had none of her fingerprints on it because she was wearing socks and shot herself by pulling the trigger with her toes. Mm -hmm. So by extension, was she shooting her mom with her toes and then carrying the rifle up the stairs with her socked foot? That is a good question. (laughs) Um, And then also she must have positioned it under her chin with her feet because there there were no fingerprints not only on the trigger but also on the barrel. Um, Mm. So that's just altogether a very interesting visual, right? And this is that lever action. This Mm -hmm. isn't an automatic. Yeah, so it's just... It seems like it would be very difficult, but we try not to critique the attorney's arguments too much. So I guess I will just say yes, it appears that that is the argument. Okay. And second, we need to remember that in a murder trial, the burden of the defense is on the prosecution, which is why some trial lawyers believe that the less that is said by the defense, the better. That seems wise. Mm-hmm. Because it's very easy to fall into this trap where you look a little silly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to provide an alternative story. You just have to poke holes in their story. Very true. So, after a three-week trial, it took the jury less than two days of deliberating to deliver a verdict. Megan was convicted on both counts of first-degree murder and two counts of firearm use on March 28, 2022. That was recent. Mm Mm-hmm. The jury recommended a sentence of life in prison without parole for each count of murder. Is that what the judge ended up sentencing her to? Well, her sentencing date was set for October 28, 2022, but on November 9th, Fairfax County Judge Brett Kasabian vacated Megan's two first-degree murder convictions. Seriously? On what grounds? Well, according to Bruce LaShawn of WUSA 9, one of the jurors did a bad thing. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. So jury instructions very clearly state members of the jury are to listen only to what the witnesses and attorneys say during the trial. This is a common jury instruction Mm -hmm. because they don't want jurors playing junior detective, going around, trying to investigate the case on their own. That makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, that's why a lot of lawyers have a hard time with the movie 12 Angry Men. Running uh-huh. around and doing your own investigating is not actually being a good juror. <laughs> True. But in this trial, there was one juror, Tasha, who ignored the admonishments of the judge. She'd been listening carefully to testimony and trying to wrap her head around how Helen could possibly have come to shoot herself, given the entry position and trajectory of the bullet that killed her. She went home one night, pulled out her own rifle, and tried to maneuver it with one hand. Oh, no. Yeah. She tried this for a while, trying to figure out how Helen could have shot herself with a heavy rifle at a vertical angle, based on the coroner's report on top of her head. Mm. She also messed around with whether Helen could have shot herself without leaving any fingerprints on that rifle. Wow, she was pretty thorough. She was, and I think this is a natural instinct for somebody who has a rifle at home to go home and go, hmm, is this possible? How did this happen? Right. Yeah. Um, But again, jurors are not supposed to do this. But she decided that there was no way Helen Hargan had killed herself. She apparently shared the results of her research with the jury during deliberations. Mm. And behavior like that is what gets convictions overturned, which is exactly what happened. Oh, wow. So, because jurors are specifically told not to conduct personal research, but to listen carefully to what is presented by both sides in the courtroom, the judge had to overturn Megan's conviction. I can feel the Commonwealth Attorney Steve Descano rolling his eyes as he pulls out all of the files to again prepare for this trial. Yeah, it's hard, and it's frustrating because there's no guarantee they will get the conviction again, much less the same sentence. Right, and I know sometimes they just settle the case at that point, Mm -hmm. if there's a mistrial or if there's a sentence set aside, and sometimes they just give it up. Do you think they might just let her go and give it up? Um, I think that they are planning to try the case again. Steve Descano recently announced, We are still committed to getting justice for victims of this crime. My office will move forward and prepare for the new trial. And Megan also remains in custody, awaiting her new trial. So I think that maybe there will be a plea deal. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like he's pretty clearly trying to have another trial. Make sure justice is served. That's right. And I don't have updates on the remaining family members, for one, because there are not that many, Mm -hmm. but also because all of the remaining family members have worked hard to protect their privacy, and we respect that. They're still going through the trial right now, and maybe they'll have something to say in the future, but for now, we'll leave it at that. Excellent. So, we would be remiss if we did not thank our sources. We'd like to begin with thanking CBS News, WUSA9.com, TheDailyMail.com, Richmond Times Dispatch, 48 Hours, Crime News, NBC4 Washington News, Fairfax County Police Department, and our source of music, Jade Brown. And, of course, we are thankful for you, our listeners. We appreciate all of your comments and that you follow us and listen to all of our episodes. It's wonderful to know that you appreciate our work. And if you would like to show your appreciation with a monetary donation, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.org backslash parasite prevention. And thank you so much. Yes, this has been the Parasite Podcast. And remember, always sleep with one eye open. Ashes, ashes. 
we all fall down. <laughs>